I think that my work with um, young people in schools and I'm actually also really involved with Girl Guides of Canada, so I work with young people a lot. Um, and I think that one of the things that I'm just like in constant awe of is the fact that they are so smart. They know so much more than I knew when I was in high school. They're more engaged in politics, in conversations around power and privilege. So I do have a lot of faith that that generation will be able to make some changes. Hello, I'm Eric Anderson. The voice you just heard belongs to Natalia Mason. She is the featured guest in Episode 2, Season 3 of YXC Underground. Natalia Mason puts her heart into everything she does. Whether it's in her role as Outreach and Education Coordinator for Saskatoon Sexual Health, or if she's addressing a crowd at a Black Lives Matter rally, Natalia's conviction and principles shine through. You're about to meet a true community leader in this episode of YXE Underground. Let's go back in time, say, to your grade six health classroom. For me, that means Fairview School on the south side of Swift Current. It's 1993 and day one of sex education. Miss Redekop wheels out the overhead projector and places a slide that is blown up on the blackboard. It's a slide of a penis. And all of us boys in the back, we, we just froze. We had no idea what was happening and in no way were we mature about it. And I'm not even going to go into what happened when the slide of the vagina was put up on the projector. I share this story with you because I definitely think times have changed when it comes to sex education. And that's thanks to people like Natalia Mason. For the past six years, Natalia, who is a social worker, has been educating students of all ages, and that includes university students, about all things S-E-X. Why is Natalia's role in our community so important? That's a question I asked Saskatoon Sexual Health's Executive Director, Heather Hale. So as we know, sex education in Saskatchewan is not always fantastic. And often, having a resource in the community who can provide that service is necessary to make sure that young folks get the information they need to make good choices about their body. Now, Natalia is a, is a great human and really fantastic at her job. So she brings this really unique blend of approachability and style, as well as a level of knowledge that's really important. So being able to blend that approachability and that kind of fact-based, no-nonsense, telling it like it is, loves to talk about sex, but also has the information to back it up. So she not only knows the stats and the figures, but also the pedagogy of teaching sex ed. So how to connect with young people, but also doing it in a way that is evidence-driven. What we know from the research is that there's a model of sex education called comprehensive sexuality education. So it's a way in delivering sex ed that is sex positive and education or information based. Um, and so when youth have all of the information that they want to know, so including how to protect themselves 
um, pleasure orientated sex ed and those other skills about how to negotiate relationships. So what sometimes people call soft skills or consent based, um, skills, they actually make better decisions and are able to negotiate situations. So what happens is that when folks have their sexual debut, they are, are more often using protection or contraceptives. They're less likely to uh, get a STI um, and they actually do it later in life. As you heard Heather mention, Natalia is a wonderful fit for this role in our community and you will soon hear why. Natalia and I met on a beautiful Saturday morning a few weeks ago at the Vimy Memorial in Kiwanis Park. The reason why we met there was it was the site of several Black Lives Matter protests this past summer in Saskatoon. Natalia attended those protests and spoke at the events. We talk about why her involvement in the protests was so important to her in the second part of our conversation, but in this first part we focused on her role with Saskatoon Sexual Health. I started by asking Natalia how she ended up working for the organization and I really love her answer. Uh, if I'm honest, it was my dream job. I was working for the University Students Union prior to that in their help center and by the end of it I'd basically just turned it into like a sexual health help center which I don't think my boss appreciated. Um, and so when I saw this job come up as the education coordinator, I wanted it so bad and um, I like submitted my application and I interviewed and I think I didn't hear back for like quite a long time and I was so annoyed. I was literally like, who could they have chosen for this job besides me? I just don't understand. I said that I love brochures in my cover letter. And Did you, you really said that in your cover letter? Yes, like I was like, I love educational health pamphlets. And it turns out that my former boss had fallen down the stairs and actually like broken her ankle or something. And so it was taking her a little bit longer to get through her work. Um, so I did end up getting the job, which I was really thankful for. Okay, and so um, there's there's lots to pull from there. Um, <laughs> so when you're when you're back at the university and you have this job, what what made what made you so passionate about about sexual health? I think it's um, always been something that I was interested in. Even when I was younger, I remember like friends coming up to me and asking questions, and I would tell them like that information isn't true or who told you that. And I think that people are always just like dying for more information about their sexual health or about relationships, especially like in university. Um, and it's not something that's super easily accessible. Um, so I've always really liked being able to answer those questions. And you also always have a captive audience when you're talking about sexual health. Like people just like will eat it up. They want to hear everything they want to know. So when, when you were back in university, what, what types of questions were, were, you, uh, were you receiving that you were just like, yeah, I can talk about this and uh, here's, here's this information? Probably more so just questions about like relationships. Is this normal? Is it okay for me to want this or expect this? Or I'm in this relationship and it's really hard or it's becoming abusive. Like, what do I do? Where do I go from there? Um, and trying to put people on the right path was always really helpful. Also, sometimes, you know, stuff like related to abortion, that kind of information is really hard to find um, in Saskatoon. And so sending people in the right direction um, was always my main goal. I kind of looked at it as... I might not always be the right door, but I'll make sure that they find the right door afterwards. Were, were people, were they comfortable coming to you or was there a sense of nervousness or anxiety? 
I think people are always nervous um, when they want to talk about sexual health. I mean, I do this in classrooms now and um, the kids are always like really uncomfortable and anxious. But for me, because this is like what I deal with all the time, all day long, there's rarely anything I haven't heard before. Um, so I think that that makes it a little bit easier. And to just like reassure people that their questions are totally normal and that everyone has those questions and everyone struggles with those things. I, I want to get to the classroom stuff in a bit because I'm... I'm I, I have lots of questions about that as well. I have flashbacks of grade six sexual yep. health in Swift Current, yep. Saskatchewan, and oh, yeah, oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, you you said too, like in in high school, people will come up and ask you questions, and I, I wonder, like, I, where did you get your knowledge at such a young age? Uh, my mom actually was one of those parents who worked really hard to make sure that we had the information that we needed. Um, and maybe this was telling of my future career, but I remember her having gone to the library to pick out a bunch of books about t sexual health, or not sexual health, but like where do babies come from, um, to give to me. And she was wanting to like go through them and read and choose whichever one she thought was appropriate. But I went into her room and had read them all before she like ended up uh, choosing the one to give to me. So I've always just been really curious about those kinds of things wow. that's yeah um that's so that's so interesting like like you knew from from early on like this this was going to be your path so the so you you write this cover letter you love your brochures you, you start <laughs> you start the job at, at Saskatoon Sexual Health um what how, how did you make then the, the job kind of your own like like you did at the university um, so I think that the first piece was getting the lay of the land and there's always like a, a, a bit of an imposter syndrome going on where you're not sure that you do have the knowledge or the answer to those questions. One of the things that I've kind of learned along the way is that it's not about having all of the answers all the time. It's more um, being willing to help someone find the answers that they need. Um, but as I've spent more time in that role, I think that I've paid lots of attention to kind of the landscape and the things that are happening in Saskatchewan and have been slowly picking away at them trying to address gaps. Tell, tell me more about the gaps. Where, where do you see the gaps, especially in, in Saskatchewan? Um, so just sexual health education in general. Uh, our curriculum hasn't been updated since 2009, um, which is more than a decade and the world has really changed since then. Uh, so we work really hard at offering presentations for um, high school students, but we also have some specialized programming. We put together a program um, with Inclusion Saskatchewan and Creative Options in Regina that I'm just really incredibly proud of. It's called Never TMI, and it, or um, Tell It Like It Is, Never TMI is the website, um, and it's a uh, sexual health and wellness program for people with uh, disabilities. And Lots of times programs for people with disabilities are um, very like abuse prevention focused and they don't uh, allow people to talk about what having a relationship would look like or how they might find a partner or what kind of things they would do on a date. Um, and so those are all elements that are included in that program and so that uh, always brings me like lots of joy. We have a program that we worked on with the Open Door Society, that's a newcomer sexual health and wellness program. I, I'm so excited you mentioned that because that was one of my questions when, when I was on the website and, and I, I think, you know, I, I clicked under kind of your section education and, and saw all the different programs and, and that one stood out to me because, you know, as um, I, I did an episode last year at the Global Gathering Place mm -hmm. and um, it, they do so much great work um, with newcomers and, and we went through a, a lot of the um, sort of challenges, but I never thought of sexual health as one of those challenges when you come from a different country so that like what does that program look like there's a lot of time spent talking about cultural norms or religious norms 
because it's not, we're not going to be the person that says the way that you did that at home isn't okay um, or not right, but it is important to have conversations and say, you know, dating might look really different in Canada and so these are some of the skills that you're going to need or these are some of the things that are appropriate or aren't appropriate. Um, even having conversations about differences in like cultural approaches to sexuality and I ended up having a really challenging conversation with some students about homosexuality and um, them just thinking that it was really not okay and for me that was like a really tough conversation to have in that moment but I also think that it's really important that we do take the time to allow those conversations so that if they want to people can also change their minds. How, how do you approach those types of, of challenging conversations? Because like you said, in, in your mind, you're thinking, well, that's like, I'm sure there's a part of you that wants to say, well, no, you're, you're not right about that. But how, like, how do you approach that as a facilitator? Um, I think that my technique is usually just to hear them out, to get them to explain that, and then to also just recognize that they're entitled to their opinions. And at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, they don't necessarily need to be accepting of uh, people if they don't want to be, but they do need to be respectful to other people. So um, choosing to say, like, I maybe disagree on that specific issue, but I see you as a person, and I think that we could still have a relationship. Can you remember, too, um, a, a time where, like, there was maybe, like, a, a really different kind of cultural norm where, where people were coming here and, and maybe surrounding dating that was that was just really different and, and like, your education really uh, was, was beneficial? Just the idea that um, in Canada we typically choose our own partners. Um, so you meet them in a coffee shop or on a dating app or at school or whatever else and you're free to make that choice on your own. Lots of people come from cultures where partners are chosen by their families um, and so I think that there's often friction between parents and young people coming to Canada because they're assimilating into some of those cultural norms, maybe wanting to make some of those decisions for themselves. Um, and at the end of the day I think it's always just about finding balance and something that you know, feels right to you, respecting like your culture, um, but also what you want as an individual. Do you enjoy, uh, Natalia, the, the collaboration like with, with Saskatoon Open Door Society or with, with groups um, involved with uh, uh, people with disabilities? Do you, do you enjoy that kind of collaboration? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, in social work, there's a saying, nothing about us without us. And I take that to heart, uh, essentially meaning that you don't develop programs for people without involving them in that program development. So working with the experts in any like particular given area is one way that we can make sure that the programs work for them um, and are successful. So those partnerships are, I think, uh, some of the things that make me most proud about the work that we've done. Um. Can you now take me into um, into the schools and and what <laughs> what you do with, with um, like is it is it elementary is it high school like what what does that look like for you? So yeah, I work with students anywhere from probably about grade four or five. Talking about puberty would be the youngest class, maybe even grade three. I'm trying to think what happened last year, um, and then I'll work with students all the way up into post secondary. Um, sometimes that's professional development with nursing students or medicine students or social work students. And sometimes the post-secondary students themselves are just getting a sex ed lesson because they need it. They still haven't had that education. Um, so it kind of depends where I'm going. Um, and that'll determine what we're talking about. Okay, so you, from, grade, from grade three all the way to university students, like you, yeah. you, you must have to really sort of adapt on the fly. <laughs> There's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of switching gears. I remember being in a class, and it was probably grade four or five students. We were talking about puberty, and I could tell that there were some kids in the class 
this uh, neighborhood was kind of like half affluent and half not affluent. So not that that's a determining factor, but you could tell that some kids' parents had really like talk to them about sexuality and sexual health and they knew all the like proper language for anatomy and then I've got another kid who's just asking me so many questions about Pokemon and I was <laughs> kind of like well you know when you're like Pokemon evolve that's kind of what puberty is and she was just like okay um, so in those moments it's really challenging because you want to make sure that the kid in the classroom that needs the information the most gets the information that they need but you also don't want to scandalize the entire rest of the classroom so it's a fine balance. Um, the fact that you knew Pokemon language, like, I, I'm impressed by that. Well, Pokemon was my, Pokemon's heyday was when I was in elementary school. Like, I was in grade two or three when that hit the scene, so I was pretty familiar. Um, when, when you get those types of questions that are just off the wall, like, I, I, I was a high school teacher for two years, but it was, like, English and social studies. Like, I, I, I don't know, what, my head would explode if I was trying to teach, you know, sexual health to, to grade five kids and getting sort of questions that were just, you know, kind of out there? Like, how, how do you, how do you react? I mean, always with humor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's been my greatest tool as an educator, um, is just being able to laugh. I don't take it super seriously. Um, I also think that there's a really valuable lesson in not having all the answers as an individual, because if I stand up at the front of the classroom and I make myself look like an expert, then it kind of implies that there's a level of expertise that they might never attain and that they are never going to know all the things that I know. Um, so if I don't know a question, the answer to a question, I love to say, I actually don't know the answer to that question. It's a super good question. Here's how I would find it and talk about calling the nurses or reaching out to them. Or sometimes I'll say, like, I'm just going to text one of the nurses at work right now and ask. Um, but for the most part, I think that just being willing to like take the time and like think through the questions with them always ends well. I mean, there's also, I get lots of like really inappropriate questions and things that are mildly horrifying, um, but they're always trying to shock me and um, there is not a question that I won't answer, which ends up embarrassing them at the end of the day. So I'm pretty good at making a teachable moment out of any question, regardless of how inappropriate it was. It's really refreshing to hear you talk about how if you don't have the the answers that it's that's okay and you can you can sort of steer them in the right direction. It sort of goes back to your like what you said off the top in terms of that imposter syndrome like pretending that you know everything but but you don't. That's really kind of refreshing. Is that like from day 1 is that something you've tried to be sort of conscious of? I don't think that it's been a day 1 thing. Um I think that the longer I've been in this role, and I've been at sexual health for six years now, um, so that's a lot of it. I have a practicum student and I always make them add up how many questions I'm answering and like catalog all the questions basically. And I've answered 3,000, 4,000 questions about sexual health, so. um, Really? Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. Sometimes when I look back at it, I'm just like, how do I do this all day? or go into four grade 10 boys gym classes one after another. It's a bit of a nightmare. But. Okay, so you you just you just rolled your eyes when you said four <laughs> grade 10 boys classes. So you, there's something there. Um, I mean, not to call grade 10 students out, but I always say grade nine students are really nervous and anxious because they're like new to the big kids school and they just like want to seem like they're grown up and like mature enough to handle the class. I don't see as many 11 and 12s because sexual health isn't necessarily in the curriculum for those kids. Um, 
So then the grade 10 students are kind of the last time that I'll end up talking to them. And they're like, they're not the new kid on the block anymore. They know their way around the school. And so they're always like trying to act tougher than they are and throw me off my game. Um, and sometimes I literally will go home and take a nap over lunch in period three. So, or yeah, lunch in period three so that I can go back to the school in the afternoon with like slightly more energy. It's that, it's that draining. It's really tiring to yeah. be on for like, four hours at a time um, but I also do like to just kind of do the whole school in one day and get it out of the way um, so you're, you're you're doing all that and yet you know you mentioned too how you're you work with with nursing students and 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 you know students at, at the university um, are, are you when, when you speak with those students do you find that like is it easier or are there still some like some basics that they maybe need some refreshing knowledge about? Professional programs don't tend to do a very good job with uh, sex things related to sexuality or sexual health. Even if you think about medicine, I'm pretty sure that the med students spend about two weeks on reproductive health um, in the course of their undergraduate studies, which doesn't make a lot of sense considering for most family doctors, reproductive health will be the majority of their practice. Um, and so the med students actually at one point had established a separate like advocacy group, I guess, called the Reproductive action group so that they could outside of their regular class studies learn more about reproductive health um, so I think just in general when I'm going in to talk to future professionals you know whether that's social workers or whether or not that's um, nurses or doctors letting them know that sexuality is a really integral component of people's lives and that it's something that they need to pay attention to and that they can't just like overlook um, one of the things I really um, admire about social workers, and, and I've had the privilege of, of speaking with a few social workers um, through the podcast, um, is that like you, you, you do give so much in your job, and so I, I usually I, I always ask them like how how if you're able to sort of leave work at work and and how you're able to sort of unwind is is are you capable of doing that, Natalia? And and if so, how do you do that? I. Well, I'm not the person that's good at doing that. Um, to complicate matters, I'm actually a grad stu student still at the U of S and my thesis focuses on condom use in adolescent girls. Um, so I really do spend like a good majority of my time thinking about sexual health or reproductive health or changing policies or changing laws or, you know, things that I'm upset or frustrated about. Um, I mean, I think I would like to get to a point in my career where I can walk away from some of the the stresses of the workday, but I'm also young enough right now that I think I can bring that energy and keep it going. You're listening to episode two of season three of YXC Underground. My name is Eric Anderson. My guest is Natalia Mason from Saskatoon Sexual Health. You can subscribe to YXC Underground on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. You can stream the episode on Spotify or the website yxeunderground.com. And if you like what you hear, please feel free to leave a review. Be sure to follow YXE Underground on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and that's where you'll see some lovely photos of Natalia taken by Saskatoon photographer Carrie Davidson. The summer of 2020 in Saskatoon will be remembered for many things. 
the cancellation of events due to the pandemic, how our community continued to grapple with the impacts of COVID-19, but it will also be remembered for when many in our community came together to say Black Lives Matter. we all gathered and we talked about George Floyd and today what we want to share with you is that George Floyd is not the only one yes. and enough is enough yeah. we're tired we're yes. fed up we can't do this anymore yes. we can't gather anymore we will if we Natalia was one of those protesters in fact she spoke at the marches I remember reading a few of her quotes from the first Black Lives Matter protest that took place shortly after the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. When Natalia and I were emailing back and forth to set up our interview, she mentioned how her passion for sexual health meshed perfectly with her involvement in the local Black Lives Matter movement, and I just found that fascinating. So in the second part of our conversation, Natalia talks about why it was so important for her to march in those protests and speak out against racial injustice. She also explains how her role at Saskatoon Sexual Health fits with her passion for social justice. Natalia also shares some really personal stories in this part of our interview, and I am very appreciative of that. I started by asking why she wanted to be so involved with the local Black Lives Matter movement. I don't know where to start this one. So I am typically pretty involved in activism. Um, I spoke at the Black Lives Matter rally and I said that this wasn't my first protest because um, I'm a black woman, I'm also queer. Um, and so it just feels like there's always things that you're protesting um, because in so many ways, you know, my rights aren't um, respected or instilled or whatever else, or even just like someone who cares about having a planet to live on in the next 20 years. It's, it seems like there's always um, a protest or a rally or something to attend. Um, the Black Lives Matter stuff hit a lot closer to home, obviously. Um, I've always been very aware of the fact that there was a lot of racism in the United States. It's weird to explain it as a Canadian because I think that my mom is, I'm biracial, so my mom's white, and growing up she talked to us lots about racism um, and what that would look like and that we might be treated differently. Um, and I think when I was younger I thought that that meant that like people would call me the n-word and not want to be my friend because I was black and that would kind of be the extent of it. Um, and so as I got older, and especially once I got into university, I started taking classes in women's and gender studies and um, learning more about systems of oppression and power and privilege and how those things are also interconnected. Um, and so when George Floyd was murdered and, murdered and there was just all of this unrest in the United States, I knew that there was no way that I could stay away from that conversation, but it also became really personal. And I often don't involve myself, myself in like online arguments that are personal because it's just like you have too much at stake and um, it's going to end up being painful. So like I'll go to bat for someone over, I don't know, the carbon tax. Um, but this was something that was like really challenging um, for me to kind of get involved with and talk about. And I think that I kind of spent the first couple days there in just a state of shock and or 
tears. Like I was crying a lot, um, which isn't normally my reaction to those sorts of things. So um, in the way that it just felt so deeply personal, like I didn't feel like I had a choice besides to get involved. The, the fact that, that it did bring you to tears and it was so personal, um, now that you've had a, like a little bit of time to maybe reflect back on on what was happening in the summer, what why why do you think it struck you as, as so personal? Uh, I think because um, there have been, you know, maybe things that have happened to me in the past and or situations that I've gotten out of um, without, you know, ending up in trouble or ending up hurt and thinking about how if I had been raised in the States or even if it had been a different person that I was talking to that the outcomes wouldn't have been the same. Um, and I'll probably weave this back and forth, but I think that there was just also an opportunity to talk about um, racial injustice and the way that you know Indigenous people are treated in Canada because that's something that I'm also just very aware of how unfair that treatment is. Um, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. Uh, yeah, anyhow, so I wanted to be able to like talk about those issues all at the same time and demonstrate to people because I think we're really good at recognizing that the United States is quite racist um, because, you know, they have slavery and we talk about it all the time and we're like, that racism was bad, but it's in the past and we're not like that in Canada. Um, and I know that that's definitely not the case for most Indigenous people. Oh, that's what I was going to say. My brother um, is 27, 28, I don't know. Um, and he's a big black guy and he works in construction and so he was hauling a trailer um, I think somewhere outside Martinsville, something like that. And he ended up getting a flat on the trailer um, on a gravel road. And the uh, property owner came out to approach him and he felt, um, he was really scared. And like to have a 27 year old man, sorry, I'm gonna get upset with this, to have a 27 year old man call you, like he was almost in tears because he was really, really scared and he couldn't go anywhere. And um, I didn't feel like I could do anything for him at that point. Um, and it just makes you feel like it's just so personal um, being worried that, you know, the same thing that happened to Colton Bushy might happen to him um, just because of the way that he looks. So, um, yeah. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, I think you bring up a really, really good point about the United States because I think there is that sense here in Canada, and I would say, you know, in, in Saskatchewan too, about how that's that's down there. That's like, you know, it's it's bad what's happening down there, but we're somehow, I don't know if immune's the right word, but we're, mm, but, we're above it. yes, we're we're above it, and 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 yet we're like, what what I really appreciate about the the protest this summer is that it it rem, I I hope it reminded people in this city in this community that we're not above it at all. Did you? When when you were when you spoke at the protest and when you were when you were marching through Saskatoon, did did you did you get that sense that there was this like okay like we're we're addressing something that's really important and and that hopefully people are listening. The so there was three different um, 
rally vigil marches for um, George Floyd and I went to all three of them and the second one was I think a little bit more impromptu and there were so many people there and I've never seen that kind of response to a protest um, in Saskatoon and like I said I've been protesting for years um, and that was the first time that I had seen a crowd and um, when people were chanting no justice no peace like I was getting so overwhelmed by it because it was just like echoing through the streets um so yeah to some extent I do think that people were more aware and more willing to get involved I think that a piece of that though was because it was more of a them problem and not an us problem so like when it comes to police violence against indigenous people in Saskatchewan i stood in front of the courthouse here actually um, in Jan January I think of last year after um, the um, Gerald Stanley trial and there was maybe a hundred people there compared to what seemed like thousands um, and it's frustrating that you don't get as mu much outrage for things that are happening in your community as you do for things that are happening uh, south of the border because at the end of the day there's not even a whole lot that we can do to influence change as Canadians um, in an American like political system but there's lots of things that we can do to change that stuff in our backyard. Is this are we in a, a, a time now where like you know we and, and, and maybe you as well like do you have the ability to sort of um, influence and, and educate people on some of the changes that that need to happen do, like do you feel as though people are perhaps more open-minded and willing to to listen to what's being said i think that my work with um, young people in schools and i'm actually also really involved with girl guides of canada so i work with young people lots um, and i think that one of the things that I'm just like in constant awe of is the fact that they are so smart they know so much more than I knew when I was in high school they're more engaged in politics in conversations around power and privilege so I do have a lot of faith that that generation will be able to make some changes um, but I think that people are also starting to open up to these conversations and being able to recognize that racism isn't just, you know, about calling people slurs, um, that it's something that's deeply embedded within our justice system, within our educational systems, within our healthcare systems, um, and that we need to be able to address that if we want people to be cared for going forward. How are you able then to, to address that through your work with uh, with Saskatoon Sexual Health? Because I know we, we've been emailing back and forth uh, a couple of weeks and, and you mentioned like your work with, with Saskatoon Sexual Health just meshes perfectly with with your involvement with uh, with Black Lives Matter. And I was I was so fascinated by that because I I've been so anxious to ask you this question. Like how, how did the two worlds merge? Um well so as a social worker, I've chosen to stay in sexual health really intentionally. I did my practicum in children's mental health and addiction, so um, counseling kids that already had experienced a fair amount of trauma in their lives. And that was really just um, tiring to me in that the bad things had already happened and I wanted to be able to prevent the bad things from happening. Um, and sexual health is one of the best places to do that because you're trying to teach, you know, autonomy, the fact that people are the bosses of themselves and um, their own lives and their bodies and that they get to make those decisions that feel right for them at a time that feels right for them. Um, and that obviously translates um, into all elements of their lives. Even talking about healthy relationships, if you pay close attention to 
the trauma or the harm that happens to people in their lives, lots of it is because of unhealthy relationships um, or, you know, family dynamics that have been interrupted um, or people that had kids before they were ready or prepared to or who had kids without the social supports that they needed to be able to raise those children in a healthy and safe environment. Um, and so I think that there are so many ways that we always just talk about like sexual health and sexual health education as being uh, preventative and upstream and it really truly is to me like the definition of upstream care. You're doing such important work like do, do you do you realize that or like do you like do your colleagues sort of like are, are they boosters of you because I, I get the impression that at times perhaps you can be hard on yourself is that a fair assessment? Um, I mean yeah from time to time I, I'm a bit of a perfectionist um, so I do expect to be you know perfectly eloquent all the time and when you're represent when you feel like you're representing people and you've only got one chance to change people's minds like you want to make sure that you're doing it right um but i have like uh, yeah i have the best work environment the best set of colleagues uh my boss has always given me free reign to kind of pursue whatever projects i want to do and make sure that i have the like resources that i need to get that work done um and yeah i a thing that I'm proud of this week is that I, uh, someone came into the clinic um, and I was working at reception, which is not what I'm normally doing, but um, needed to that day. And they asked if I had done a presentation at a facility a couple of years ago. And I was like, oh yeah, I, that's me. I did do that. And uh, he was like, wow, um, that presentation was like so fantastic. It kind of, you know, changed changed my life in a lot of ways. I uh, started coming to this clinic and everybody always just like takes such good care of me and I tell all of my friends to come here because this is like the best place to get help um, and like thanks for all the work that you do and I was just like wow oh, that's so nice thank you because I don't normally normally get to hear that. Sometimes I get kids yelling hey sex lady at me in the mall but that's less glamorous. It's not great time boys is it? <laughs> oh guaranteed guaranteed. Um that, I think that flows nicely into into the the last question I, I have for you because that, that's a really nice story you just told about about that that person coming to tell you how how much the presentation meant to him and how it changed his life um, and and again you can take this whether it's it's through your work with Saskatoon Sexual Health or um, the work that you are doing with Black Lives Matter but how Natalia how do you um, how do you know or how I guess how will you know when you're when your work is, is really making um, a difference and, and maybe the impact that you, that you hope it, it can make? Oh, uh, I'm not sure. I think that to, like, to a really small extent, I'm still waiting to see some change to um, the curriculum in Saskatchewan to see that updated. We've met with the ministry about it um, in the past, and so I plan on being on their case. I just finished a really big project that I've been working on for a couple of years, and so I said to my boss, I was like, I've got nothing but time now. The ministry better watch out. Um, but I think that, you know, provincially, when we start to see our HIV infection rates dropping, when we start to see our teen pregnancy rates dropping, hepatitis C, like all of those things, um, those are really good indicators. There is some research that came out just actually on Thursday, I think, um, showing that more youth in Saskatchewan than anywhere else use condoms. Yes, I saw that. And I was, I was giddy. I was literally <laughs> like, what? Yes, are you kidding me? Um, and so those kinds of things are really um, reassuring and kind of help me, help me see that we're on the right path. But I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just working for a future um, where people 
have all the resources they need to have happy and healthy lives seems so simple to me and the fact that there's so much you know opposition and resistance to those things is really frustrating um I think you're awesome. This was this was so this was just really wonderful to to speak with you and and the work that you're doing and and that you'll continue to do on on so many different fronts. Um, and thanks for being um, for sharing so many stories and for uh, sharing some um, like personal stories too. I appreciate it. So thanks for your time this yeah, morning. Thanks for having me. It was fun. My thanks to Natalia Mason for spending a Saturday morning with me and appearing on the podcast. If you want to learn more about Natalia's role at Saskatoon Sexual Health, visit Saskatoon Sexual Health. This has been episode two of season three of YXE Underground. My name is Eric Anderson. I host, produce, and edit this local independent podcast. You can subscribe for free to YXE Underground on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. And you can stream episodes on Spotify or the website yxeunderground.com. And that's where you can find all the episodes from the past three seasons. Don't forget to leave a review of the podcast if you like what you just heard. You can also follow YXE Underground on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. A big thank you to Carrie Davidson for taking such wonderful photos for this episode. We met here at the Vimy Memorial, where I am right now, and, uh, and Carrie managed to snap just some really lovely photos of Natalia, so be sure to check them out. Thank you to the good folks at Danger Dynamite here in Saskatoon for maintaining the website. A big thank you to my cousin, Andrew Dixon, for creating the music for the podcast. And Andrew, I hope you are staying safe in California uh, with all the forest fires. Definitely thinking of you. Before I go, I would like to acknowledge that this interview was gathered on Treaty 6 territory and the traditional homeland of the Métis. YXE Underground is a production of the Salt Hammer Production Company. My name is Eric Anderson, and thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon, Saskatoon.